Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Artificial intelligence, or AI, has become the hottest topic from Wall Street to Washington as investors as well as government officials around the world are looking at AI as the most recent technology tool to regulate. What does this all mean for the average person, especially if they are on their educational journey? I recently had the pleasure to talk with AEI Senior Fellow Brent Orell on the intersection of skills, AI, and the workforce as part of a live event for AEI's annual Summer Honors Program. Brent is an expert in labor and workforce policy where he focuses on these important issues across both the legislative and executive branches of government. Recently, Brent and I have been collaborating on the future of AI and the regulatory challenges surrounding it. In this episode, we share our thoughts with the students who will be looking at the labor market themselves to make decisions about their own futures. Since this is a long discussion, we have split it into two episodes. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So <laughs> Brett and I got together yesterday. We we're like, we're doing a joint podcast. How's this going to go? So, um, so I run the Tech Policy Center for um, AEI, which is a little unique in that most of our scholars are actually non-residents. So they're ac- mostly academics around the United States. Just myself and Claude Barfield are here in um, Washington. But if you ever have any questions about the work we're doing, please feel free to email, text however you want to get a hold of me. And it's an honor to get to do this today with Brent. I don't know how it's going to work as a dual podcast, but we'll figure that out. (laughs) And likewise, I mean, uh, uh, I am not a technologist. I just play one here at AEI. (laughs) So um, this is a great dialogue for us to have, though, because uh, as you heard in the introduction, I'm mostly in the workforce development side, thinking about jobs and skills and uh, opportunities for training and advancement in the workforce. And that is largely a technological, in, in many ways, largely a technological question. So. so I think the first question is if you agree with me that the biggest challenge for artificial intelligence is that they called it artificial intelligence. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it, uh, yeah, I, I think there's something to that because uh, we have all been weaned um, on Hollywood movies in which computers take over the world and, and kill us. I know. Yeah, uh, and that's been that's not new. That's like that's a that's been a theme in kind of human experience for millennia. You know, as long as, as humans have been creating more and more sophisticated technologies, somebody always looks at that new technology and says, "That's going to kill us." Um, and um, so it's not new, it's a perennial. Yeah. I think we might deserve it, but that's another topic for another day. <laughs> um, so since uh, I can talk about technology ad nauseum all day long, I thought it made sense. Brent was like, do you mind if I do a few slides? And I said, sure, that will give us something to focus on and give more of a purpose to the artificial intelligence conversation. So let's start, let's, let's get started. Okay, okay, let's look at these slides. AI and a new era of automation. We are of course, constantly in an era of automation, but this is one of those surges that we're going through right now uh, that's really going to accelerate um, uh, technology and its deployment in the economy that's going to trickle down into all of our lives, all of our, and when I say lives, I mean working lives. So uh, yeah, this first slide is, uh, I try, uh, in this slide, what I'm trying to do is to conceptualize how we ought to, as people think about the future of work 
in the midst of incredible uncertainty, because that's the, that's the main challenge that we have. A lot of people in the workforce development field who want to like, okay, we've got these workforce programs and they're training people and the results are kind of, you know, meh, not great. Uh, not terrible by any stretch of imagination, but just haven't, we haven't really seen huge results. But if we just, you know, turn the dial on this program a little bit this way and there's a dial over here, we're going to turn it a little bit that way and we're going to get, and that's going to fix and make these programs work. That has never worked. Uh, in any, uh, in the, these programs date back to the 1930s in some cases. Uh, we keep adjusting them and they keep not working. Um, so you take that situation, right? And then you say, let's put AI on top of all of, of, of that. Uh, and what do you get? Well, the answer is we don't know. And that is one of the hardest answers to have. Uncertainty um, is, is our biggest challenge. And so what can we be certain about? I think there's three things that we can be certain about. We can be certain that uh, the workforce is not growing as fast as it used to. That's baked into the cake. Um, unless we have a time machine that can take us back 40 years and encourage people to have more children in the past so that we have a larger population to have children today, uh, there's nothing to be done really about that in the in, in the foreseeable future. So we have a smaller workforce relative to the size of the economy. It will be larger in absolute numbers, but smaller relative to the to the economy. That can become a constraint on growth um, uh, because people are on both the supply side and the demand side uh, indispensable. So what do we do about that? Well, uh, right now we're kind of worried that we we're going to automate ourselves out of jobs. And I think it's at least as big a danger that we simply won't have enough people to do all the work that needs to be done. Because the history of automation is and technology is that it arrives, we panic. Uh, it then moves out into the entire economy. And lo and behold, it makes everybody's life better. It makes us all richer, mostly. And it, uh, and it increases aggregate demand in the economy so that we have more demand for jobs, for workers. We may, our biggest problem may not be too much technology, but too little. Too, not too much automation, but too little automation in the context of a constrained labor force. So at an individual level, that doesn't solve your individual problem because... I, if you came to me and said, what should I get trained on so I make sure I have a job, I couldn't answer that question. Uh, I might be able to tell you, like, today what you might need. I can't tell you what you need six months from now. I can't tell you what you need a year from now. So all I can say to you is that what you need is flexibility and adaptability to change. That's the, um, that's the master skill of the future. So just a, before you go to your next yeah. slide, so I do a lot of work on uh, the whole broadband, how do we get America connected, and there was a big uh, Rose Garden ceremony, what day is today, I guess it was Monday, today's Wednesday, uh, and what's so interesting is one of the questions when we look through all that is the workforce pipeline, and this is actually not, this is not AI driven, this is just people, 
Like we really, all right, so we've made this decision that we're going to, we need to put everybody connected to the internet so we can all benefit from all the great things that the internet brings to bear and eventually everybody can be attached to some version of AI if they wish to be. And that means we need people, like, they have to dig ditches. We have to you know, create tranches so we can put the wire down. Once the wire's down, eventually in that process, you need somebody who's actually gonna be able to maintain that. Some, once all of that is in place, it needs to go into a node. Once it goes into a node, it has to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there is all this money being flown out by the US government and it's, it doesn't really have a plan on who's going to do the next layers of the work. So this is an ongoing theme that you will see in this space and it's just fascinating to see where, where people again are so concerned that AI is gonna come in and either A, kill them or they're going to um, take away their job and it's just the opposite. And it's just the work your, your team's doing is really fascinating in this yeah. area. So uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going out to Columbus, Ohio to give a talk. Uh, and while I'm there, we're gonna do a planning session um, with some of the leaders in the Columbus area to talk about uh, how they are going to meet their not long-term labor demand, their like short-medium term because of these federal investments in chip manufacturing, which are not just generating jobs for chip technicians. It's every other kind of job that goes around that the process of, of construction, develop, development, construction, maintenance, uh, and then eventually staffing. But we don't have enough people to do any of that. Uh, Columbus is one of the fastest growing uh, uh, metropolitans in the, in the country in terms of job growth. They probably got a two, 3% unemployment rate. Where are they gonna find the people um, is the biggest, the biggest question. And then if you actually have a body how are you going to equip that person with skills that can get these projects done? Which gets us to training. I know you're going to eventually get there on yeah. the slide. So, yeah. um, this next slide is on the AI uh, AI slide. I love 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 this chart. Okay, so um, the the uh, this is a chart of the performance of Chat GPT three. Uh, 3.5 and 4 on various standardized tests. Um, everything from uh, uh, AP physics to uh, the, the unified um, bar exam for attorneys. Okay, so they, to test the ability of these large language models um, in terms of their, uh, their sophistication and dealing with language-based questions, this is what they did. They ran it. They ran the all the. They had the. They had the algorithm take the test, right? And so the dark blue lines are how it performed at the GPT three level, and the green lines are what happened three months later uh, when GPT four um, came online, and you can see just the massive increases in capability. In in a three month, basically a three month period. Now, of course, there's a lot of work going on simultaneously on three and four, and so it wasn't like oh we had three and then we built four. But the point remains: the technology is advancing incredibly rapidly, uh, and uh, the the one the red circle uh, that's the law uh, that's the uh, unif unified bar exam uh, performance. You know if you if I had a parking ticket, I'm not sure that I would want GPT-3 to represent me. 
However, GPT-4, all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, like this thing is performing at the highest levels uh, in terms of its ability, uh, its abilities um, in that area. But, and it's getting better in all of these areas. And we can expect that, I think, I don't know if you agree, Shane, but I, what's to prevent it from just getting better at this point? Oh, I love it. So how many people in the room have played with some version of this, three or four? Pretty much everybody. Good for you guys. Yeah. All right. Yeah. How about Bard? Has anybody played with Bard? <laughs> All right. So I'll tell you what I love about Bard better than ChatGPT is that it's current. So where ChatGPT is still, uh, its last uh, learning language model was in 2021. If you're doing current research, I think, I think you just have to have a Gmail account. So just consider that. Uh, plus, it's also, you can get into the Google Labs on it. But it's, it's amazing how much faster your learning cycle goes, which I think is something that uh, Brent and I both talked about is this concern that people think you're just cheating. And it's like, it's not cheating. You're just getting smarter faster, and which is good for everybody in that space. So I'm glad to see that everybody's had a chance to play with this because I think it's amazing. And, and to the law firms, that baseline legal research where it's good to have a level of memorization, as we've all learned, like how many, as I call it the Google machine, like if I don't have to know everything of the Google machines available to me, right? You know, I can, I can leave certain data points back there because I can always reach into them. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see, and those of you who decide to go to law school, what your training element is going to be because you're not going to be like the regular summer associate who's just going to go down to the stacks and have to find regulation on airplane part, blah, blah, blah. This is all going to be presented to you, and you're going to get in that faster learning cycle again. So that's a, a really interesting fact you've brought mm. to our attention there. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, in, uh, on our team here at AEI, I've been forcing my research assistants to Forcing get, them? I think yeah. they're all enthusiastic about well, it. Well, they're, they're enthusiastic now. They weren't so enthusiastic when I said they had to do it. But Wait, now, can anybody be bummed if their their boss was like, "Hey, would you mind jumping on Chat GPT to get some stuff done?" <laughs> really? Yeah, it feels like a betrayal. I think. Of, of, uh, of, they stop talking to you. They're yeah, like, "You're not interesting anymore." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's see. What do we? Oh, say. Okay, so artificial intelligence. So a few bullet points on this. So that bar graph. Uh, is drawn from a study by the University of Pennsylvania and OpenAI uh, that they did together. And what they found in the study of the poten <clears throat> potential impacts of um, uh, large language model, general uh, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, was that 80% of all jobs will, have, uh, will be affected by use of uh, chat GPT, 80%. So effectively, chances are pretty good Whatever you do in your life, it's uh, if you were if you were in the job, it's going to change. Uh, if you're coming into the job, you're going to have to learn uh, that, and you're going to have to continue to adapt. Uh, and then 20% of all jobs are what's called fully exposed to AI, which means that uh, every aspect of the job itself could be automated based on the types of tasks that are in it. Um, uh, this is, a, this is an, an inversion of the pattern that we have seen around um, automation throughout the history of automation, which is typically automation hits at the, at the bottom of the educational uh, and, and, and skill uh, portfolio. It 
it it goes for fact it's gone for factory workers it's gone for farmers uh it's gone for people that uh didn't have college and above education chat gpt does the exact opposite it's its biggest effects are going to be felt in professions with the highest levels of education and skill. Okay, that doesn't mean all the lawyers are going to be unemployed. I don't, I, I don't think that's the case. They're not going to be unemployed. They're going to be smarter. smarter they're going to be smarter. Better. They're going to be faster. They're going to do more um, is what I think the effect is going to be of that. But it is going to impose a steep cognitive cost on attorneys, especially people who are mid-career attorneys, to learn uh, and that's hard, you know. Asking people to learn that much, that it can it can be a real bummer when you're in your mid fifties, and somebody says you have to learn something completely new that you've been. It's not been part of your environment. It's not been part of your uh, of your uh, professional experience prior to that. Being very technical in my thought process, yeah. I think of it as an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone and I'll think, wow, that person needs an upgrade. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when you're saying, I get it, somebody in their 50s, it's not that hard. We can slowly train them to just get back to l learning a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's better. And I'm really, I'm glad everybody raised their hands that they were, they've been messing with it. Y you should also be looking at the, I mean, I, I get like several lists a day with dozens of new tools. I would be scrutinizing those tools for things that you think might be applicable to your area of interest. So that you, you can usually use them for free for a little while, but like try it out um, and, and experiment with it um, because you need to get into that stream now. You don't want to wait six months or a year, you want to get into it now and start exploring, swimming around in this new um, ocean of technology so that you, you have that level of comfort that you need um, and uh, in terms of, yeah, I can, I can do this. I'm not, I'm not completely incompetent. Uh, I published a piece today. I'm pretty today. sure you're not incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I published a piece today uh, in the Bulwark about this very question, or uh, it's partly addressing this question. <clears throat> the last line of it is, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed intern is king. Right. So if you are new to the workforce, but you know something about this technology, people are going to think you're a genius. You're all of the people above you who are mostly avoiding learning how to do it. All right, so challenge to the audience. Anybody who's got a favorite thing that they are working with that they like and think is valued and their colleagues would learn from it, you can send it to me or you can send it to Jake, who's our project manager, and just give me a one sentence or a little paragraph on why you like it. Because I'd love to see what other people are working on. Because it's easy to do what gets in the paper, but it's also interesting to see what other people are working on. So let us know. Uh, let's see. Uh, so, uh, okay. So the jobs most impacted... Uh, finance, accounting, insurance, data processing, least exposed are production services, things like logging, manufacturing, uh, not so much uh, uh, impact on those. Um, uh, interestingly, like food production and delivery and health and social assistance also not heavily impacted by AI because they are more human intensive um, kinds of activities. Uh, all of this, please, everything that I say, put an asterisk next to it in your mind and say, for now. 
because the way that the technology is developing, it's going to, whatever we say today, uh, could change. Um, so, uh, but, so we say, okay, so it's these knowledge workers who are most exposed. But a, a study came out just last week that uh, looked at the employment effects of AI uh, in professions. So not, uh, not mechanics, but people who are in um, the law or accounting or whatever. And what they found in this study was that those, the number of people working in those jobs has increased, not decreased. And I think that that's the aggregate demand effect that I was talking about, which is as you're able to do more, you create more business, you create more demand, you need more people. Um, so are those knowledge tasks in the, and service uh, sector tasks that are exposed to AI, are they going to be affected by it? Yes, but we don't know exactly what the effect is going to be. It could be to increase the demand for some of those jobs. So stay tuned. So what do you do uh, in that? This is the uncertainty thing I was talking about. What do you do in such an uncertain environment? And I think uh, uh, Dr. Doom, Nouriel Roubini, how many of you have heard of that guy? Nouriel, Nouriel Roubini. Okay, he's the one who in 2007 said, we're going to have a financial disaster. And then it happened. Uh, and he was, so he's, that's how he got the, uh, the, the moniker of Dr. Doom. And I heard him talking about this recently, and they asked him, well, I mean, given all this uncertainty, what is, what's your advice? And he said, uh, same advice that I give to my financial clients, you need to hedge. So if, hedge for your risk. So if you are pursuing education in the humanities, the arts, uh, you know, non-technical fields, and that's where, the way you're built, then what you need to do is to build up skill sets on the other side um, and uh, learn, you know, take classes in science and chemistry and physics and computer science and all, you know. You need a balanced portfolio, as he calls it a portfolio approach to education and training um, so that you can adapt um, to a changing work environment. So wherever you're strongest, don't just Keep doing the thing that you're strong on. Look for the, your areas of weakness and try to build those, um, those areas up. Did you have any questions? Well, no, my, should I, just, <laughs> should I think I, that's <laughs> very good advice, but I was thinking to myself, as you get older, I just call that staffing. <laughs> <laughs> Things I'm not good at. Can I pay them? Yeah. Yeah, and then I move on. Yeah. Okay, so um, that brings us to, all right, so what does this balancing uh, or hedging look like? The way that we approach education and training in this country from a workforce standpoint is that we put most of our time, money, effort, attention uh, at the top of the skills pyramid to equip people with technical skills um, that they can, that, that are easier to translate directly into economic outcomes. Uh, we don't spend, uh, we spend a lot of time on basic skills in, you know, grammar school, junior high, high school, uh, learning math and reading and that. And then we've got at the bottom level this, these non-cognitive skills, and that's what I want to focus your attention on. These are, when you add them all together, these are the kind of skills that add up to the capacity to learn. 
right? They are communication, uh, collaboration, critical thinking. These are the things that, that uh, they're called non-cognitive skills. They're also called soft skills. They're also called professional skills. I've heard them called permanent skills because they, are, they cut across all types of work. And my contention is that these non-cognitive skills are the foundation for the adaptability that I was talking about. That's what you, that's what you need. If you, and if you don't have them, I suspect that most people in this room do have them. This is, uh, but if you don't have them, it's going to be extremely difficult to keep up with the pace of change. Uh, uh, the non-cognitive deficits are severe in our low-income and disadvantaged um, populations, uh, and um, they are the ones who are most at risk in this um, in this changing milieu. It's interesting looking at this pyramid because I mentioned as we talked about like the trenching for the wire to be able to have broadband across America is very similar to welding. It is a specific skill that you need to have, and you need humans there to do that. Coding, though, we're going to start to see maybe possible come down to basic skills mm -hmm. because we're seeing that you, if you have a good concept, you can ask AI to help you do the coding for you. So, I saw. I don't know if you saw this, and maybe it's an urban myth, and you can correct. <laughs> we'll me. solve the urban uh, myth or, right uh, here see, on stage. Or a cyber myth. Let's call it a cyber myth. But uh, about a program that will allow you to draw a web page that you want, you would like to have exist in the world and you write in the buttons that you want and all this stuff, and then you feed it into ChatGPT, and it actually produces a working web page, or most of a working web page that then you would populate. Does that? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't no. yeah. Jake, you've got one of those things that you can draw, and I don't. Have you tried it? You have a work assignment now to see if you can call this urban myth out. Yeah. So uh, it, maybe it's an urban myth, but I don't think it was. I think I, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure this was a reputable source. So that's the kind of thing that ChatGPT, in terms of the coding and IT world, uh, the effect that it's going to have. Now, does that reduce the need for the number of coders? Or does it put a premium on the best coders and the people who can be systems architects and think problems through from beginning to end? Uh, like many things, it's about asking the right question. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll still have people asking it the wrong question and coming back with bad answers. But the more sophisticated and the more you can get the question right, the better it'll be. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's certainly true with ChatGPT. The better you are at framing your questions, the better the information is that yep. you're going to the get prompts out. Are, prompts are important. Yeah. Um, and that goes to the critical thinking kind of skills that we build at the bottom of this pyramid. Okay, so uh, this is my answer to um, what what people need to be how people need to be thinking about education and training for the future, which is that our skills are really form a kind of double helix where we've got uh, technical skills running down one side, and we've got non cognitive skills running down the other, and the two things are mutually reinforcing. Right, so. Um, Again, it's that idea of building a skills portfolio that has both of these present and both strong. That is the best kind of um, insulation, as it were, from uh, from a, in a change. I should say, in a changing job market. Um, 
The trouble is, uh, as I was explaining to my class, I'm teaching one of your classes on, uh, on workforce, is that whereas I can teach you, I can sit you down in a classroom or in a lab, and I can teach you a technical skill. I cannot sit you down in a classroom or in a lab and teach you a non-cognitive skill. They aren't so much taught as caught. They are absorbed as we go about doing everything else that we're doing, that we're developing these non-cognitive skills. So as I said before, it's like, I'm sure that for most people in this room, not a problem. You had certain advantages in life where you had the foundation that you needed in order to gain and develop your non-cognitive skills. Uh, but for disadvantaged populations, that is not the case. And it's a real challenge figuring out how it is that we're going to um, support people that lack non-cognitive skills in this new technological environment. How much of that is tr training? I mean, can you train for that? Uh, well, I would have, until two weeks ago, I would have said no. Um, uh, and this, this is there's something called Polanyi's paradox, or yeah, Polanyi's paradox, and something that has plagued the economics profession for half a century or more now, which is that uh, these kinds of tacit skills, like I know, looking at your face, what you're thinking, right? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> are, are, we have a human beings have a theory of mind about other human beings. We we have a way of projecting ourselves into all right. So uh, Polanyi's paradox says that that's what's called an implicit or a tacit skill, right? So it's not something that we can even really effectively talk about, but we are absolutely dependent upon it. And you know it when it's not there. I have a friend, her name's Beth, who yells at her niece. She's like, read the room, Elizabeth. Like, she doesn't read the room. She's like, duh, you're never going to get anywhere in life. Read the room. Read the room, right? So reading the room is maybe a good summary uh, skill for like the, the, that social capacity. Uh, and, um, and so uh, if you, I would have said two weeks ago, no, you can't really do much about this. You can't teach somebody how to read the room. And then, of course, AI proves me wrong. You can. There was a study done on call center employees. Uh, 5,000 major technology, uh, software firm dealing with angry customers, right? You need good non-cognitive skills to deal with angry customers because you need to be able to read the inflection in their voice gauge how frustrated they are, figure out, and then all that, while you're doing all that, you're also like trying to solve the actual problem that they have, whatever that actual problem is. So what they did was, it was 5,000 workers, half of them got uh, a chatbot to support their interactions with customers. So, uh, uh, and what they, uh, and the other half did not. They were just on their own. You know, it's business as usual. So the, the half that got the bot, uh, well, first of all, across the entire population, the overall um, productivity increase was about 14%, which is quite a bit. Um, we're struggling to get 2 3% across the economy, um, or sometimes 1 2% across the economy. So when you see that kind of productivity increase, you 
should pay attention. But then they looked at just the entry-level and lower-skilled workers. Their productivity went up 35%. The, the, the large language model that is operating behind that bot was built on transcripts of conversations between customer service representatives and customers, but only the best of their customer service representatives. So the less skilled employee is getting all of the benefit of the much more highly skilled coworker um, but it's in an electronic form. And so productivity goes up drastically. Training time dropped from uh, a year and a half to about three months to get up to that level. That's great. That's a huge savings um, for, the, for the company. Customer um, uh, satisfaction scores all went up. Uh, everything got better. Nobody lost their job. And the, the biggest challenge is now what do you do with those, those, the best of those customer service representatives? Because when they had the bots, it actually slowed them down because they already knew how to do it. They didn't need that coach. They didn't need that angel on their shoulder telling them what to do. So it slowed them down. So what do we do with those people who could reasonably become frustrated in that situation of, uh, you know, I used to be really good at this job and now I'm just average. Um, because everybody has caught up with me. The answer, I think, is uh, much like what we saw with ATMs and bank tellers, is that you take those overperformers and you move them up into more complex tasks. Um, So they're clearly probably able to do more than they are currently doing. Isn't that what caused the crash of 2008? They all became... (laughs) Never mind. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Mortgage. Any, Any... did you have uh, anything on that one? Any, any so I just I realize this this slide is a little hard to read right in front of me. So, but it's worth if you guys are interested, you know, getting this from uh, Brent's guys and, and taking a look at it. So I do think that you know the things that you call out in here are very interested in the whole, like you, you mentioned on the slide, the unstructured way of building gradually over time. So there's certain things that are going to be constant, like you know, well they're not even, but like you know there's fundamentals of science and technology, but the, you know, the social engineering elements of it. So this is a really interesting way of looking at this complex issue. I think Mm -hmm. you've done a lovely job of capturing all that. Yeah. um, And uh, we put it up there as a double helix because these things are intimately related um, and uh, need to be thought of as working together rather than separately or because of the way our brains work. We like nice, clear distinctions, and we want to set things against each other, but they really do, um, they really are uh, best thought of in tandem. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.